welcome to episode number 60 of the Plant Powered Radio podcast series. On today's show from Ontario, Canada, Jonathan Balcom. Jonathan Balcom was born in England and he's lived in New Zealand and the United States and currently calls Ontario home. He's a biologist with a PhD in ethology, which is the study of animal behavior. Jonathan's books include Pleasurable Kingdom, Second Nature, The Exultant Ark, What a Fish Knows, Superfly, and Jake and Ava, A Boy and a Fish. He's also published over 60 scientific papers and book chapters on animal behavior and animal protection. Jonathan served as Director of Animal Sentience with the Humane Society Institute for Science and Technology and Department Chair for Animal Studies with Humane Society University in Washington, D.C., and as Associate Editor of the journal Animal Sentience. He's lectured on six continents over many years. Be sure to check out recordings of Jonathan's entertaining presentations online. Thank you so much for being here today, Jonathan, and happy World Vegan Day. It's a pleasure to be here, Janine. Thanks for having me, and same to you. How long have you been on the vegan path, and what got you here in the first place? Well, I'd like to think I've been on the vegan path since I was born, because I always cared about and loved animals, and of course I love the environment, and being vegan is very good for both those categories. But uh, it was uh, I was 25 before I, I made the firm decision to stop eating animals, and I was uh, about 30 when I realized that becoming vegan was morally imperative and to be consistent with my own personal sense of ethics so that would that would be back in 1989 when i stopped purchasing all animal products as best as i could cool Uh, yeah i think we're born we're born vegan i believe that and then we find our way to it hopefully again find our true nature again and but was there something in your life i think you talk about um summer camp that inspired your uh, love of nature and creatures do you think that contributed to ultimately to your decision hard to say uh certainly summer camp uh, reinforced and bolstered my my already developing fascination with nature and wildlife uh you know from my earliest earliest memories i love to uh, explore the outdoors and insects, which are so accessible, uh, were always completely fascinating to me to, to look at these very much smaller creatures and to see the, the deliberateness of their movements and, their, and, and what looks like a, a cognitive experienced world for them too. Uh, I, I was never too young to appreciate uh, and be fascinated by that. So certainly growing up in Ontario, where I live again now, I lived in, in the US for 30 years. Uh, but uh, I'm fortunate to have very close access to nature, and I take advantage of that regularly. Yeah, you and and Susan have been out. You post on your Facebook regularly beautiful photos of all over Ontario. There's still lots of wild places to visit, it seems. Yeah, Susan's good at the uh, the, the big scenery, uh, the the landscape type views, and I tend to focus on the smaller on the smaller things, uh, the smaller majority, as one author called them. And uh, and that's a nice compliment uh, to, to each other. And yeah, there's so many parks and preserved lands within short reach of here. Of course, one can go further afield. I, I, I was up in Algonquin Park um, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I actually worked there in the summer of 1978. So it was great to finally go back there again. Lots of lakes and wilderness. And although I must say some of the some of the hiking we did around the park, outside the park, was every bit as wild as Algonquin, which seemed to be a little bit busier than the other spots. So sometimes it's it's uh, you need to avoid the parks to go off the beaten track a bit more. 
Right. It's nice that there's still some wild spaces as well. Yeah, yeah. I was so troubled to learn when I was researching and writing my book, oh, Superfly. I, I was shocked to learn that all the animals on Earth today, all the vertebrates, humans make up about 30%, livestock about 66%. And if you do the math, that leaves 4% for all the others. Wow. It's just stunning to me. That is. That's kind of scary. And all the amount of land that goes into producing food for them and the water and everything else. I'm really excited to talk about these little creatures that often get ignored. What a Fish Knows was tremendously popular in the world. I think it's been translated into a whole bunch of languages. So before we get to Superfly, can you just tell us what, how do you intended with What a Fish Knows and what kind of feedback are you getting? It's very gratifying to have a book that's, that's really made an impact. Uh, certainly my goal is with most of my writing on animals is to elevate the status of animals to hopefully uh, make readers realize that, boy, you know, I had no idea that these creatures were capable of this, that, and the other emotions, cognition, planning, you know, individual recognition, face recognition, uh, various cognitive skills. Uh, you know, the list is long. Um, and that book has uh, seemed to hit the zeitgeist. It seemed to come out at the right time. And, uh, you know, I still get regularly get emails from people who are who were, were delighted to read the book, that it was sometimes, in some cases, life-changing for them. Uh, and in many cases, people write to say, once I'd finished your book, I knew I would never eat a, eat a fish again. Uh, as somebody who, who strongly supports not eating animals is probably the best way to help them in the, in the individual sense. Uh, there's no higher compliment to me than to get something like that from a reader. Absolutely. And I guess you're intending uh, similar... Hope for similar results with Superfly, mm -hmm. hey? Well, <laughs> I don't think there's too many of us that happily admit we eat flies. But well, we squish yes. them, though. I mean, we swat them and we squish them and we just disregard them. But they're fascinating as well, right? Uh, yeah, indeed. Yeah, sure, of course. We have, we have a troubled relationship with so many uh, kinds of animals and certainly flies. Anyone who thinks they haven't had any experience with flies uh, just needs to be reminded that mosquitoes are flies, they're true flies, and uh, there's very few who haven't had experiences with them. Uh, but yeah, such a fascinating group of animals, incredibly successful, opportunistic. Um, they come in so many shapes and sizes with so many life strategies that it was a, it was a real joy to research and write a book about flies. And what, what is the kind of evolutionary story of, of flies and other insects? Um, you know, how far back do they go? Can we, can we trace them? Gosh, I'm trying to remember if I wrote about what, what they thought origins of flies are. Uh, I know that insects were the first, I'm pretty sure I've read that the insects were the first animals on land or macro animals. Maybe there were bacteria before that, but, but uh, the first animals you could see. And uh, they go back a long way, you know, uh, the roots are deep, obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but uh, we have a common ancestor with them if you go far back enough, but I think it's many, many hundreds of millions of years when, when that happened. Uh, and of course, after that branching off, insects went in their own directions and they've diversified and become far and away the most successful group of, of animals uh, on the planet. 80% of all of all animals on the planet are insects. Although we, we're having a big uh, negative effect on them as well. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are quite a few flies 
biting flies especially who would be quite disappointed if, if humans were no not suddenly not on the planet uh, but most insects are harmed by us and and most do not benefit by us it's estimated that we've lost perhaps half of, of all the insect biomass uh, in the last 50 years similar oh. pattern to fishes oh wow and there's probably lots of species that we we don't even necessarily know about i'm guessing Indeed. There's 160,000 described species of fly, Diptera, order Diptera, on the planet. And that number is increasing by about 1% per year. And it's estimated that there's probably three to five times that many uh, actually in existence. Uh, it's just that, that that huge other number haven't, haven't been discovered yet. Every wow. time some an entomologist puts a, a, a collection, a net, trap, or what have you, in, particularly in the tropics, uh, their novelty rate, which is the, the the percentage of undescribed species in the sample, if it's flies, it's uh, it's up typically in the ninety percent, ninety to one hundred percent range. Wow! And so, why why should we care? Like, why? Should, I mean, flies like us, and mosquitoes certainly like us, I guess, because we produce stuff that they can decompose. I think there's a whole conversation there as well. Why should we care about these creatures? They're just kind of pests, aren't they? They sure can be pesty, some of them, although most of them we never see and they never bother us, they never cross our paths. But the, the, to put it bluntly, if, if we didn't have flies, we wouldn't be having this conversation, we wouldn't be here, despite the annoyances that some species may cause us. And indeed, some biting mosquitoes are very serious transmitters of, of deadly diseases that kill millions of humans. Um, but, but on the other side of the coin, flies are incredibly critical, and insects in general, to, to ecosystems. Uh, they drive... Uh, they drive food webs. They're crucial pollinators. Flies actually rank second only to the bees and wasps, the hymenoptera, for pollinating plants, including, of course, the most of the crops that we rely on for food. And um, they are also vital elements of food webs, both as consumers themselves and parasites, but also being consumed as food sources. They, 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 they provide a critical bridge between the microorganisms that are not really bioavailable for birds, mammals to eat, uh, but the insects consume them and then make them available through their own bodies as biomass and food for higher up in the food webs. So uh, those are just a few of the, the, the many ways that they play a critical role on a planet, in planetary ecosystems. There's so many different ones, and there are some that are quite beautiful too, right? Yeah, uh, with with diversity like 160,000 species, you're going to find some pretty amazing, uh, amazing uh, types. Um, yeah, we have the ordinary house housefly, and and I say ordinary, I mean just to stop and look at a housefly up close, it's it's a pretty remarkable piece of, of biological engineering. And their close relatives, the the blowflies, these are the ones that have the the, the blue bottles, the green bottles. The there are also gold colored ones. Uh, so they're they're really if you can. If you can put aside their life history where they are attracted to dead rotting bodies and, and poop and stuff like that, you know, we have negative associations for them for that. But of course, that, that also is another benefit is that they clean up messes and the world would be a lot more filthy and pestilential without them. But I mean, hoverflies, very diverse group, very important pollinators and very beautiful. They mimic wasps and bees, or a lot of them do. So they have nice yellow, black patterns. They don't sting. Uh, they just look like insects that can sting and they benefit from that. Uh, phantom midges, crane flies, bee flies, fungus gnats, hobgoblin flies, 
Quasimodo flies that are named for having a hunchback. I have a book in 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 my study, uh, which is a pictorial book of the of the biology and diversity of Diptera of the the fly group, and it's a sumptuous extravaganza of shapes and colors and sizes. Uh, the smallest fly you can fit dozens on a pinhead. Uh, like about as big as a flake of pepper, uh, and the biggest fly is um, longer than your finger. Uh, so the, yeah, just uh, they are pretty pretty richly diverse and, and impressive to look at some of them. So if we were to travel around the world and pay attention, we would notice different species of flies in different parts of the world. Then, yeah, we'd notice relationships uh, like rubber flies, for instance, is a group of pretty big husky predatory flies that perch on on plants and and catch them and rubber flies occur up here in, in Ontario in the in the northern more part of the globe where the winters get very cold they they've evolved to manage and, and hide away for the winter uh, but you go to the the tropics you go to the equator somewhere in be it Africa or South America I'm, I'm quite sure in fact I know I know that rubber flies are there too and they're different species but their basic body form would be similar in the basic basic life strategy of of hawking and preying on other, usually other insects. In rare cases, the biggest species actually have been known to catch hummingbirds. Uh, but, they, you know, you'd see those those parallels if you know what rubber flies look like. And, and that applies to many, many kinds of flies. But there's so many obscure ones that, uh, as I say, we, we haven't even discovered yet. There's tiny midges that are, they're, they're not exactly charismatic looking and they're tiny, uh, but they're there and often in prodigious numbers. And uh, they, they're just as important as the big showy ones. What about black flies are kind of famous in Ontario, I think, and I've heard they can be very nasty to humans. Should we care about them too? I, I've been actually a bit surprised that I, I, as an Ontario liver, I grew up for 20 years in Ontario and now I've, I've been back here for almost four years. I uh, have not had a lot of contact with black flies. I have I have had them, met them on a few occasions. I think I had, a, I encountered them a few times when I was living in the United States as well. Um, but but there are parts in parts of northern the northern reaches of Canada where they become extremely numerous, as do some of the mosquitoes there. I, I pity some of the uh, some of the mammals, particularly, uh, and maybe some birds uh, up there in the summer for being plagued by these. Apparently, the, the reindeer migrations are partly driven by uh, and where reindeer go on any given day, including into the water, is partly in, in large part just. just determined by the presence of biting flies. They can really harass them to that degree, but certainly black flies are, are part of that picture. And so they need the blood then? I guess they live off of blood. Is that the thing? Yeah, the females do. Uh, males, most biting flies. I think there's some exceptions, but it's almost, it's usually, certainly with mosquitoes, it's females who do the biting. They And they don't take our blood to feed themselves. They take our blood to nourish their developing eggs so that because they, oh. they lay a raft of eggs on the water they're like a lot of insects they the, the mosquitoes depend on water for their larval stage so they lay their eggs in the water there's some two three hundred species three thousand species of mosquitoes i forget how many kinds there are um and they and they um they they the females go after our blood because they need a very rich uh meal to nourish their their eggs and i mean a mosquito who's just had a blood meal i think they gain about three times their their natural weight to, to add insult to injury they um 
they urinate while they're drinking the blood to concentrate the blood so that there's more concentrated of that red liquor that they need to to feed their feed their young so while they're be- eating us they're also pissing on us so it's quite it's quite rude quite quite <laughs> <laughs> they're hard to love they are it's, they are they really yeah. are they're, they're they're actually quite beautiful i mean there's also a youtube video somebody filmed more than one person has filmed a mosquito emerging from from the pupa at the, at the surface of the water and it's, it's it's a really if you can again you have to put aside the biases and the prejudices we have against them which is hard to do but if you can do that you, it's really a, it's quite quite a stunningly beautiful scene Okay, and they do pollinate, so we can try to correct, appreciate correct. that. Then. Particularly the males. I mean, the males also do have appetites, and they they go for nectar on flowers, and that means they end up on flowers. And that lovely old evolutionary relationship: the the, the plant has evolved to offer nectar, a reward, a food reward in exchange for a pollen transfer transfer service. And mosquitoes up close are quite hairy little things, a lot of them, and so there's a lot of ways that uh, that those little pollen can get attached to them and then get passed on to the next flower they visit. So it's a lovely, it's a lovely, um, very successful symbiosis. If we didn't have pollinators, we wouldn't have flowers or food. Yeah, it's as simple as that, really. I mean, there are certainly uh, insects are not the only pollinators. Uh, the birds, bats, and some other mammals play an important role, but uh, far and away, numerically, uh, insects are the most most numerous and important and yeah a flower is a is a is a vehicle for uh, getting to the next stage which is to, uh, fruit and the fruit is the is the part that usually usually that we eat and when i say fruit i mean in the in the broadest sense it may be a, a fruit it may be a, a nut it may be a vegetable so what does modern forms of agriculture uh, monocropping and industrialized chemicals how is that impacting these pollinators not in a good way obviously uh, pesticides are are very i mean they're designed to be just to be harmful to to insects so one of the problems is that we tend to we try to do things as efficiently as we can efficiently not necessarily ecologically efficiently but economically efficiency which has led to huge monocrops monocultures yeah you know many of us have seen pictures of wheat fields in the prairies that just stretch to the horizon you see these massive combine harvesters uh, it's it's a it's a bit of a desert ecologically uh, for the for the great majority of species they can't live there they need diversity in their habitats however if you get a specialist a specialist creature who specializes on wheat uh, such as say a little beetle or or, or the like, or, or on any other pick any other crop. If it's a mono crop, then that crop is very vulnerable to that. So what do we do? We we apply pesticides to either discourage or to kill uh, what's there. And and toxins are often not very selective. They're harmful to other creatures and they work their way into the food chain. I mean Rachel Carson taught taught us this in uh, early 60s with Silent Spring. Uh, we're losing a, a lot of species. You don't hear as many birds singing in the spring anymore because uh, they've been they've been killed off. A lot of them by not necessarily directly by the pesticides, but by the pesticides in the insects that they eat or the other animals that they eat as part of the food web. So yeah, this is an ongoing problem, and I certainly uh, I felt it was important to include uh, a discussion of that in, in my book Superfly. Oh, good, because I think it's also having an impact on the human immune system, though I'm not sure how much studies there are about that or how much that's being talked about. 
Yeah, it's important to remember we, of course, are part of food webs as well. And as long-lived mammals, we're able to bioaccumulate a lot of toxins uh, over the course of decades, and that can come to, to harm us. Uh, so, you know, kind of a little bit of karma there, what goes around comes around. This is why there is a very flourishing organic foods movement, and it, it's been growing a lot in, in the recent decades, and, and a lot more people are trying to choose, hopefully have the opportunity, in some cases they don't, but uh, to choose uh, organic foods is, a, is, a, is sort of an investment in your, in your own life and your own chance of longevity. Yeah, it helps, but I, I don't know. I, I remember Percy Schmeiser, right, and the idea that these genetically engineered seeds uh, do fly around the earth and plant themselves in other farmers' fields. And um, also pesticides end up in the water supply and the soil. And But organic is the best we can do, I guess. And also food forest type ideas, like diversify just within our own neighborhoods, our, our gardens, hey? That's right. Uh, natural gardening is a is a growing movement. Uh, uh, you know that we we've had this love affair with lawns. Uh, I have to admit, I mean, a, a lawn, it is aesthetically beautiful. But as I've learned more about what it is that makes a lawn, it means killing so-called weeds, which are usually actually native species, which are just the very plants that we ought to encourage, because they're the plants that the insects here have, and the and the birds, etc., have co-evolved with. They're the ones, they're the ones who who benefit by them. Uh, so having natural gardens is a, is a great thing to do and unfortunately we still tend to have a bit of a lawn culture where people try to keep a, a nice clean lawn i'm happy to say that in some places including ontario here they passed some legislation against using roundup on your lawn you can't i, I believe that's now illegal here um, it's it's been recognized that this stuff is just really bad news in the long term it accumulates and it affects everyone including us so, uh, but it's an ongoing struggle to change those policies. I, I have a situation in my own building here where they have a sort of an automatic once a year uh, pesticide application and I've tried to stop it and I, I've had limited success. It's interesting that we're, we're sort of brought up with this, this fear of these tiny little amazing creatures. Why do we have this gut response to, especially spiders? People are afraid of spiders and um, it seems weird that we grow up somehow learning this yeah and i think that's the key i think a lot of it is what we learn what we're taught um i think there is some science on this that if if kids uh, if their model let's say the grown-ups or the model and the and the grown-ups model a, fear, a fearful response the kid learns that and uh, worse if the grown-up you know models the squashing response or that sort of thing, then the kids tend to pick up on that. I mean, it's not to say that we're just complete mimics of our parents and we can break out of that. I was fortunate. I grew up with parents who absolutely adore animals and, and would set a, set a great example. I like to think that I would have ended up where I am anyway, uh, but I don't know. You know, you don't have that perfect control group in your, in your life. Well, there are studies of identical twins uh, that, that show that uh, enculturation to the environment rather than the genetics, the inheritance, uh, is a very strong force and that we grow up with different values depending on what kind of example our environment sets for us. We can have much better relationships with, with invertebrates. Uh, uh, you know, I get fruit flies and other animals in my in my home from time to time, and I try to deal with them in a in a in a user friendly way. Uh, I I don't kill. I, I and I find that I can avoid that, and it works out fine. 
but I know some people have you know cockroach infestations in the city and stuff like that, and that's a little more challenging. I, I, I realize, but if you poison, you you can you can kill a lot of them, and then there's just new space for new ones to move in. So, containment and exclusion are the best long-term strategies. Containing food that attracts them and uh, and building them out. In the case of mice with holes, of course, mice are not insects, but insects, same idea, but sometimes a little more difficult. Right. Well, hopefully the, the new generation of kids who are growing up vegan will have a compassion for all beings, right? Let, let's hope we can move in that. What are some of the most amazing stories that you can tell us in your research about flies or bugs? The, some of the things that you just would never imagine that they're capable of doing. This first one uh, I'd love to share, it doesn't really ingratiate flies to people because it involves parasitism on humans. But nevertheless, I think if you could just, again, put the biases aside and just look at the pure adaptational elegance, it's pretty remarkable. And I'm referring to bot flies, which are one of these species that actually doesn't just doesn't go after our blood per se. It actually goes after our flesh. I mean, they, they literally, the parent fly uh, the, well, that's the key. That's the, the coolest part of it is how, how does the fly, the parent fly, get their little maggot, their little larvae into our body? And, and the, the bot fly, which is a, a large bumbling fly with no mouth parts, they don't eat it all as adults. They do all the feeding as when they're larvae on the, on the body of some other animal. So a lot of biologists and people hate them, uh, which is ju justified because it is a, a flesh eating parasite, although they do seem to produce some kind of material, some kind of chemicals that, uh, that, that avoid causing you pain and causing you a lot of pain for the most part, but they live for several weeks, generally tropical. But how does a mother bot fly get her larvae into our body? She never makes contact with us. She uses a courier. She catches a mosquito, preferably a female, because it's only the females that bite uh, us or whatever the target animal is. There's many species that don't go for us. They go for other species. And she grabs a mosquito out of the air and lay, lays an egg on the mosquito. Uh, and I, I forget, I think the egg hatches out as a larvae then, or maybe she lays a larvae directly. Some flies do bear live young. Larvae fly, crawls onto the mosquito and then the mosquito, if successful, lands on say us, bites us, larvae feels the warmth of, the, of our body, crawls down to the, to the base and waits for the mosquito to withdraw and then crawls in through the hole left by the mosquito's mouth parts. So that's gross, that's weird, it's eerie, it's not appreciated by us, but I find it an incredibly uh, incredible adaptation that, that this bot fly, these bot flies have evolved to, to use a third party, a courier in the, in the form of a mosquito. So even mosquitoes get parasites and they get manipulated by other animals too. If I can give you just one other brief one, uh, I was I was fascinated and a little bit bemused to learn that uh, fruit flies, male fruit flies, um, who have been rejected in their advances towards females, uh, tend to go gravitate more towards alcohol than than successful male fruit flies. So it does sort of conjure up an image of a of a depressed fruit fly in a bar, you know, drinking drinking, <laughs> drinking some alcohol. Alcohol is relevant to the life history of fruit flies, by the way, because uh, they eat fruit and uh, fruit de fruit uh, ferments when it when it when it rots and that uh, byproduct of that is is alcohol. So female female fruit flies also use alcohol in a, in another way. They use it as a toxin 
as a deterrent against uh, parasitic wasps. So if they're being parasitized, they'll consume more alcohol, which is more likely to be toxic to the wasp larvae, the parasitic wasp larvae, larvae or egg developing inside them. So uh, fruit flies alone have, have a very interesting relationship with alcohol. Fruit flies are amazing. First of all, where do they come from? Like this time of year, they're kind of tapering off now. Yeah. Everybody asks that same every question. Day, every morning I get up and there they, there's more of them. And I do my catch and release. It's just this perpetual job. And yeah. uh, and that definitely a glass of wine. They they go for that, that glass of wine or vinegar. Actually, technically vinegar flies is what, is what they properly are, are named as. Uh, but uh, we've come to call them fruit flies. I have to just share what Greta Marx brilliantly came up with. He said, time flies like an arrow and fruit flies like a banana. Ah, bum bum. <laughs> so fruit flies, you know, they're the most studied animal on earth by us. Wow. Uh, they're the darlings of geneticists. And uh, there's a there's been over 100,000 published scholarly articles about fruit flies. And yeah, it is a it is a kind of mystifying. How do they how do they get in? How do they arrive in a house? I don't see them outside. Mind you, they're so tiny. Uh, that's easily, easily, easily overlooked outside. But when they're in your kitchen, you notice them. And uh, I actually describe a couple of fruit fly humane traps in my in my book that are quite effective. But of course, if you do use them like me and you're not diligent about taking them out, what started as a fruit fly trap becomes a fruit fly uh, breeding ground. Right. And so you're kind of like treading water and you're kind of you're getting some out, you let them out, and then there's more in the kitchen. So but as a biologist, that's kind of a, in a way, it's a bit of a reward for me. But I know I'm not the, the usual, the usual homeowner when it comes to liking insects. Uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by them. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of really neat facts known about fruit flies, partly just because we study them. And, and it's a reminder that if we studied, you know, other flies in, in as much detail, we would discover amazing things about them, too. And indeed, we have. It's just there's a lot more stuff we know about fruit flies just because we've we've given them so much of our attention. Why do, and so you said geneticists like to study them because they breed so quickly, I think I've heard, right? It's a lot of things, a lot of factors there. They, they do breed quickly, so you can get 25 generations in a year, uh, which is, uh, you know, you can actually study evolutionary change and, and scientists have certainly done that. Um, for instance, they put, they've, they bred flies, fruit flies for generations in the dark uh, and they've found at the end of many, many generations, so-called dark flies are more um, uh, more able to mate with with uh, with non-dark flies than light flies. Uh, that that was that was poorly explained, but um, but uh, the, but uh, what was I going to say about fruit flies? I, I don't know. If what, there was why? What kind of scientific? Thing. Oh yes, yeah, right. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for reminding me. Short-term memory loss here. Maybe it's because of mosquitoes. I don't know. Um, yeah, they're very convenient. They're easily kept in captivity. You can feed them and, and, and keep them happy in a, in a little vial. I say happy. I don't know if they are happy in a vial. They might not be, but they seem to, they're, they're happy enough that they breed prolifically and uh, the larvae, um, you know, are quite happy to eat whatever medium in that you put in, especially if it has some fruit in it as part of the medium. So they're very convenient. And just the fact that we've studied them so much makes them more attractive to geneticists because we already know a lot and you can build on that. One of the paradoxes of science is that the more you learn, the more questions you ask. So as you become more knowledgeable, you become more ignorant in a way. So uh, there's always new questions to ask. And if you discover something new about 
about a, a a creature then it's like oh well why that and how did that come about and so there's a bunch of new bunch of new questions and we've and we've described the genome decades ago now i think it's we've done the genome with a fruit fly which i think it's a I can't remember if it's a lot shorter than ours. Certainly the, the size of a, a species genome is not proportional to its size and complexity. Although for that matter, you know, on that note, a fruit fly is every bit as complex biologically uh, in terms of its structure and anatomically uh, as, is, as, as is a human. Um, there's a nice quote, uh, there are as many organs in a fly as in a leviathan. You know, nature is incredibly good at, at miniaturizing tiny, tiny creatures uh, and I marvel at fruit flies. I, I had the I had the opportunity to look at them under a dissecting microscope when I was researching the book in a in a lab in Georgia, and uh, just to look at the the detail, the symmetry, the the, the markings, the just the structure. The it's, they were just like little beautiful jewels of life. They really were. They really are. They're the faceted eyes, the colors, the, the arrangement of dots on the wings. Uh, it's amazing. I, I sort of somehow think of an analogy. Carl Sagan referred to the Earth as the, the pale blue dot when it was finally seen from outer space. When humans started got into the and out into astronaut stages and could look at look back at the Earth, and it's this tiny blue dot. And if that was the only perspective we had of this planet, we would think, "Wow, it's so small, so insignificant as it is in terms of the scale of the of the universe." Uh, you know, there can't be much going on there because it's this tiny little thing and yet you, we know how complex the planet is this earth so i wonder if by an by analogy when we look at how small a fruit fly is we may be missing the boat and, and you know when we when we study them up close um, we do find incredible complexity and sophistication and what looks like cognition i mean fruit flies are, are known to have an attention span uh, they make rational decisions uh, and we already know as i mentioned earlier they they manipulate alcohol for their own benefits the closer you look, the more you discover we've underestimated them. And that's a broad overarching theme of my writings. Uh, that's, a, that's a point that I try to get across because it's a, it's a common theme. It's a common thread uh, with, be it with fishes, reptiles, rats, you know, fruit flies. Uh, you know, one, can, one can question what about bacteria? I mean, you know, there's some, certainly they're, they're certainly well studied too, but when we find surprising things about them as well. So these, 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 these things relate to where do we draw the line on sentience, uh, you know, uh, awareness, consciousness, the ability to feel and, and the like. And there's a lot more scientific interest in that these days. Uh, and it's a very interesting topic. It is for sure. And I think you spoke about um, personalities, even in some cases, they've discovered that there's different personality traits yeah, you know the way biologists define personality is uh, is is that it's a phenomena that traits, behaviors, responses that are different among individuals and consistent within individuals through time. Certain patterns of behavior, like this this individual fly is prone to fleeing on seeing a picture of a predator. This other one runs and hides. Well, that's a bit like fleeing. Um, and then this one uh, freezes. And then this other one does a threat display or runs forward. And you test them again a week later, and they do the same sort of response. So it's a it's a consistent behavior that's different across individuals. This is sort of the basic way that we we would define personality in humans. We we don't usually have to have it defined. We sort of intrinsically know what it is because we learned it from a young age. But but um, you find that in nature. You find, I mean, evolution by natural selection works on diversity. It works on variability across individuals. Otherwise, there's nothing to select from. So. 
So di difference, that diversity and, and the range of differences, be it personality or some other aspect, is uh, widespread throughout nature. Can we talk about bees? I was just listening to an interview this morning where you were talking about something that you described as something that most people know about this um, bee uh, dance. And I had never heard that before. So I'm assuming there's other people who don't know about bees. Uh, the, what did you call it? The wag, waggle dance? Yeah, the waggle dance. That's right. It, it was discovered by, first described by uh, Carl von Frisch, who won the, an Austrian biologist of the 20th century, won the, shared the Nobel Prize in medicine in 1972, I think it was, for the development of the field of ethology, my field of, of animal behavior. And uh, he, he first described the waggle dance of, of bees. I guess he had a, he set up a, bee, a beehive that he could observe it behind glass, and uh, and uh, he found that these these bees, worker bees, would come back from flying in the field, and they would do this rapidly vibrating their body and turning their angle uh, and doing a circle and back and forth. Actually, they keep the angle the same because that's relevant to the angle of the sun outside the hive. That's one of the key bits of information they give in the waggle dance. It conv conveys the quality of the food source, the direction, and the distance. And it's it's been studied a lot since, uh, and it's a it's a it's a beautiful example of symbolic uh, lang a language. And it's done in the dark, of course. These hives are generally dark, so it's not a visual thing. It's it's primarily, uh, I guess, it's vibration and sounds and touch. And I think there may be a role of olfaction as well of chemical communication in some cases. And uh, and it's been very, very well studied, and it's it's pretty sophisticated. For just just one example of the sophistication, if the food source is far away, you know, ten minutes may elapse between when this worker bee finds this lovely field with these great flowers that I got to tell my got to tell my colony mates about. Let's fly back to the hive, and I'll let them know with my dance. You know, I'm I'm animating the the bee a bit there, but it, but I think analogously that may be what's going on. I think I think an insect can feel excited. I think a honeybee can feel excited. Um, in any event, the honeybee goes back, and of course, over ten minutes, the angle of the sun changes a little bit, a few degrees, because the, the sun's migrating across the sky as the Earth rotates, right? And the bees account for that. The angle of the dance, which which is is relative to north, I believe. Uh, is is changed during the dance to accommodate the migration of the sun across the sky. So that's just one wow. nuance of this thing that is a wow. Yeah, it's it's. There's also an American biologist did a did a, an experiment where they they took bees out into the middle of a lake and fed them on sugar water. Uh, the equivalent of nectar and then let the bees fly back to their colony and the bees would do their dance to indicate where this food is they were ignored by the fellow worker bees plants flowers do not grow in the middle of lakes and i and i guess the bees knew that these directions are leading to the middle of a lake the experienced bees hmm. and so so those dances were primarily ignored and the scientists uh, did other locations getting closer and closer to shore and they were ignored until until the bees were actually fed on sugar water on the shore. And then the workers started responding and coming back to them. So that's a, another example of a study that I've heard that, that was quite compelling and, and intriguing. Just makes you wonder what else is going on that we don't know about, right? Yeah, yeah. Sure, Absolutely. Sure. Uh, why don't vegans eat honey or beeswax? You know, uh, I think I think probably there could be there could be ethical ways of eating honey. You know, if you sh if we shared it with the bees and took a little bit and gave them extra food in in return, but in commercial beekeeping and honey honey development honey extraction, that's not typically the way it's done. And 
it's a it's kind of an exploitative thing and a lot of the practices in commercial beekeeping are disturbing and not necessarily bee friendly and i think that's the reason that vegans generally choose not to eat honey i don't know if i if, if many how many vegans share this view but in, in my view what makes something vegan or not is whether it's uh, non-violent or not and whether it's harmful to the to the animal we all need to think critically about what 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 is it that makes something uh, animal friendly or not uh, what is a, what is it that makes it a vegan decision or not and when there's a, when there's a commercial trade of their products i think that plays a role as well in our decision making sometimes yeah it usually creates problems uh, when it, when it when it's for profit and money then uh, that's when problems often creep in. We've got a few minutes left. Um, film and TV projects, these are exciting. And did you say you're writing another book? I'm always writing a book. Good for you. you. Yeah, well, I, actually, I, I am a kind of between books. I have a book that's it's imminent. It's literally coming out tomorrow. Uh, oh. It's my first, first um, children's book. It's called Jake and Ava, A Boy and a Fish. And it's uh, it's it's published by Griffin Press in Minnesota, and uh, it's a, it tells two parallel stories of a boy who goes on his first fishing trip, age eight, with his granddad, a little bit parallel to my own experience as a child, and uh, and then it tells the story of a fish, an archer fish, who goes out to try and catch insects with her uncle, and so these two stories run parallel, and you know they're going to converge. Of course, the boy catches the fish, and it's a it becomes a a story of empathy. Uh, uh, the boy uh, has feelings for the, the, both the earthworm on the hook and the and the fish in, in the water who he catches. So um, it has a it has a, a happy ending, and um, it's a book I wanted to to, to write because I, I want to legitimize uh, natural feelings of concern that I think a lot of children have when they see a fish gasping for for life uh, when pulled out of the water, uh, but uh, they're not encouraged to 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 follow those those feelings. Uh, you know, we're taught that uh, it's just a fish, uh, and uh, that's just not rigorous. So the science shows that there's a lot to being just a fish. So uh, that that book is is coming out as I say tomorrow, and I've got thoughts about maybe some more children's books in the future. But um, I've got several ideas for my next popular science book, grown up book, but I haven't decided on anything yet. And do you have an illustrator for your children's book? Yeah, a woman named Rebecca Evans. She's based in New Jersey. She's illustrated a lot of books, beautiful work. Uh, she's a watercolorist and uh, watercolor is a, is a great medium for a, a fish theme, of course. Uh, really, It really works. I'm, I'm really delighted with her illustrations. That's great. More vegan kid books. That's awesome. And what's the film and TV projects? Um, Various ones, actually. I, I have a conversation with a couple of uh, film producers in based. I think they're in, based in Spain. Tomorrow, uh, uh, that's that that film is about animal emotions, I think. But uh, I was filmed recently by a crew in um, based in uh, Quebec here in Canada for a film uh, about the oceans. That's uh, you know in the early stages of planning. Uh, they also hope to do a TV series on people who are sort of doing a lot of things to help ocean life. So I was honored to be uh, spend two days with that crew out in a in a park near here, being filmed, snorkeling and uh, interviewed and and uh, that sort of thing. And you made an appearance in Seaspiracy as well. That's right. Yeah, I was very proud to be part of that film. I think it's a really hard-hitting film. It's gotten a lot of attention. That's good to see. We have to pay attention. We have to be thinking about this stuff. Turn on the TV today and this um, climate 
conference in in Glasgow, I think it is, or certainly in Scotland, is, is front and center, front and center. Great. Okay. I'm glad to see that, yep. you know, and similarly, we have to we have to be thinking about our relationship with with different ecosystems and with the animals that live there. And that's that is part of the job of a, of plant based eat vegan people like us to do, you know, vegan. Wow. Uh, what a change. I mean, 20 years ago, it was it was a word that many people had never heard of or they mispronounced vegan or vegan or what have you. And uh, generally uh, dismissed as a kooky, uh, you know, way, way to live. And now, I mean, just in the last week, I mean, I saw back to back ads yesterday for uh, vegan mayonnaise and silk, you know, the, 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 the Hellman's vegan mayonnaise they showed and then the silk uh, plant based milks. And uh, another one, I was driving on the highway to Toronto to uh, a medical appointment to, towards Toronto last week and passed a semi truck that had the word vegan on the side. It was a it was a bread manufacturer and they said gluten free and vegan on, on the, as part of the label, the big letters. It's like, you know, that's just I've never seen that before. Everywhere you look, you're seeing and hearing this word vegan. And now McDonald's is coming out with its McPlant menu. They've already launched in, in Europe and they're planning it for here. Times are changing pretty fast. And of course, they have to. They have to change fast because we're messing up the planet and it's really starting to bite us in the butt. Witness climate change, pandemics, global warming, and coral bleaching. And the list is the list is very long, of course. And we, we're dependent on this planet too. We're not apart from nature. We are a part of nature. And so you soil your own bed, you have to sleep in it. You know, we, we can't get along that way for long. We need a healthy planet. And healthy bodies as well, right? Totally, yeah. yeah. All right, thank you so much. Our guest today was ethologist and author, Jonathan Balcom. You can find more Plant Powered Radio by visiting us on YouTube and by subscribing to this podcast for regular updates. Please continue to be safe and free and considerate towards all species. And thanks so much for listening. Passion encircles the earth for all beings everywhere. <laughs>